Chapter 4 of Charles Simeon by Handley Mole. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Parish Simeon's appointment was welcome news to his growing circle of godly friends, younger and older. Through Henry Venn of Yelling he had already become known to that illustrious Christian layman John Thornton, 1720-1790, Venn's early friend and the friend and active helper of John Newton and Thomas Scott, and indeed of a host of good men and good causes. He was, says Sir James Stephen, one of those rare men in whom the desire to relieve distress assumes the form of a master passion. Cooper wrote a noble elegy on his death. Thou hadst an industry in doing good, restless as his who toils and sweats for food, avarice in thee was the desire of wealth, by rust imperishable, or by stealth, and if the genuine worth of gold depend on application to its noblest end, thine had a value in the scales of heaven, surpassing all that mine or mint had given. But I must not yield to the temptation to speak at length of Thornton, merchant, prince, saint, wise counsellor, unwearied giver and worker in the cause of God and man. He touches Simeon's life, so far as I know, at very few points only, but it was an important touch which he gave now in a letter of manly Christian counsel, sent at once on hearing of his young friend's new charge at Cambridge. Let me quote the letter from the manuscript just as it is written. Clapham, 13th November, 1782. Dear Sir, I was glad to hear the books came so timely, and that the Bishop of Ely had sent you the presentation to Trinity Church. May a gracious God guide, direct, and bless all your ministrations to the Redeemer's glory, and make you a blessing to many. Permit me to use an uncommon freedom, and I hope you'll forgive me, should you not be able to join issue in sentiment with me. What I would recommend is to set off with only the usual service that has been performed, as by that means I apprehend you will gain upon the people gradually, and you can at any time increase your duty as you see occasion, and I should on the same principle advise against exhorting from house to house as heretofore you did. I assure you a subtle adversary, as often obtains his end by driving too fast as too slow, and perhaps with religious people oftener. Remember, it is God works and not you, and therefore if you run before the pillar and the cloud, you will assuredly be bewildered. The Lord ever was and ever will be with the small still voice, and therefore beware of noisy professors. They are far more to be dreaded than the worldly minded. Watch continually over your own spirit and do all in love. We must grow downwards in humility to soar heavenward. I should recommend your having a watchful eye over yourself, for generally speaking, as is the minister, so are the people. If the minister is enlightened, lively and vigorous, his word will come with power upon many and make them so. If he is formal, the infection will spread among his hearers. If he is lifeless, spiritual death will be visible through the greatest part of the congregation. Therefore, if you watch over your own soul, you may depend upon it. Your people will keep pace with you generally, or at least that is the way to the blessing." It is a sad, though too common, a mistake to be more regardful of others than ourselves, and we must begin at home. Many regard watchfully the outward work and disregard that within. Your sermons should be written, well digested, and becoming a scholar, not over long but pithy. 
that those who seek occasion may find none except in the matter of your God. May the God of all grace grant unto us and all that are dear to us the repentance of Peter, the faith of Paul, and the love of John, and be with you at all times and in all places, and with, dear sir, your affectionate friend and hearty well-wisher, John Thornton, the Reverend Mr. Simeon. Ten days later, another and longer letter reached him dated Hoxton, London. It was from John Newton, 1725 to 1807, of old, the godless sailor land, then the captain of a slave ship on the Atlantic, later, after long convictions, in which a glance at Thomas Akempis had a place, brought under Whitfield's mighty influence, at length ordained, curate in charge of Olney for fifteen years, and now recently made rector of St. Mary's Woolnoth in the city. Newton's repute for Christian good sense had already led Simeon to his door in Charles Square, Hoxton, and he now wrote a letter of admirable counsel, spiritual and practical, to his Cambridge friend. A few sentences must be the sample. The Lord sees fit to fix you in a noble stand indeed. Were I a collegian, I think I should prefer a church in one of our universities, and perhaps Cambridge especially, to any station in the kingdom and yet i overrate myself in thinking i would dare to make such a choice were it in my power he has chosen for you and on him therefore you may confidently rely for all that patience fortitude and meekness of wisdom which you will need especially in a place where so many eyes will be upon you so many tongues ready to circulate every report to your prejudice and so many ears open to receive them your sense of his great goodness and the strong impression you have received of the power and reality of unseen things have inspired you with a commendable zeal. Shall I advise you to repress your zeal? Far from it. It would better become me to wish to catch fire from you than to attempt to chill you by the cold maxims which often pass for prudence. Yet there is such a thing as true Christian prudence, and perhaps at this time Satan may not attempt to damp your zeal, but to push you to extremes, to make you throw unnecessary difficulties in your way, and thereby to preclude your usefulness. If the heart be right with God, the best means for avoiding this overdoing is a close attention to the whole scripture. Detached texts or sentences may seem to countenance what by no means will accord with the general tenor of the whole particularly the spirit and conduct of our Lord in the days of his humiliation furnish the best model. His manner, his gentleness, his patient attention to the weakness and prejudices of those around him we cannot imitate too closely. But then the man is to beware on the other side. I have known more ministers than one greatly hurt when they have been able to smile upon the well-meant indiscretions they committed when their experience was but small. By degrees, zeal, instead of being regulated, is extinguished, till at length the love of the world and the fear of man prevail. Thus I have seen some frozen into mere lifeless images of their former selves, and some have not even retained a resemblance of what they were. So I have almost by habit a fear and jealousy of those who are remarkably warm and active at their first setting out. I have left little room for an apology if necessary, but I hope you will not expect one. I love you and wish you well, and shall be glad to hear from you whenever you are at leisure. Believe me to be, dear sir, your affectionate friend and servant, John Newton. Let me add here, though it belongs to a rather later time, a scrap from a letter of Henry Venn's. Yelling, August 6th, 84. 
My dear friend, were my advice to be taken, I would rather have you give place to the rising prejudice against your preaching than to oppose it and preach in spite of them. Be not afraid of them. Your meek submission will be of more service than any preaching, for it will convince the spectator of your conduct that you are not high-minded and over-fond of hearing yourself, or important in your own eyes, as if the work of the Lord could be carried on by nobody but yourself, which is their present false judgment. From your affectionate and obliged friend, H. Venn. Above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves. A little earlier, the same obliged friend, himself as brave as he was wise, had written to Simeon, December 20, 1783, Thou art called to be a man of war from thy youth. May the captain of our salvation be thy guide, shield, and strength. These extracts throw a suggestive light on both Simeon's character and his circumstances. Evidently, his elder friends did not think for a moment that he would fail in courage or energy. They feared for his moderation and discretion. We have already seen how well he had begun with his new parishioners, even in this respect, and the development of practical and balanced wisdom, as he goes on, is remarkable. But the fire of those first days evidently sometimes threatened conflagration, as his strong spirit was affronted not so much by personal insults as by contempt of his work and message. Henry Venn's daughter, Mrs. Elliot, used to tell a story which shows us Simeon at that time under a sidelight, ready to betray even at yelling a certain harshness and self-assertion. He had just ridden away after a visit at the rectory, and first one Miss Venn and then another exclaimed about his manner. "'Come into the garden, children,' their father said, and led them out into that favourite schoolroom. "'Now pick me one of those peaches.' But it was early summer, and the time of peaches was not yet. How could their father ask for the green fruit? Well, my dears, it is green now, and we must wait. But a little more sun, and a few more showers, and the peach will be ripe and sweet. So it is with Mr. Simeon. The belligerents in Trinity Parish, however, were in a mood to attack the most good-natured man who was not the man of their choice. Long and painful was the siege laid against Simeon's activity and influence. After many months of waiting, he began a Sunday evening lecture, that is a six o'clock service followed by an unwritten exposition, an almost unprecedented innovation. It was at once largely attended, but after the first few Sundays the uncompromising churchwardens shut the church doors and carried off the keys while the people stood waiting in the street. For that one time Simeon had the doors opened by a smith, but he thought it wiser to drop the enterprise for the present. Their behaviour, he writes to John Venn, has been highly displeasing to the whole parish except two or three enemies of the gospel. Nor has it been less illegal than uncivil. May God bless them with enlightening grace. I shall renew the lectures next summer. But he did not realise the hope so soon. The illegal opposition continued at intervals for nearly ten years, and in March 1792 he stated the case for an opinion to... Sir William Scott, afterwards Lord Stowell, and case and opinion lie in manuscript before me. It appears that the evening lecture was begun mainly in the interest of the servants of the colleges, see above, page 19, and that the wardens claimed the right to stay it because the church was not a vicarage. The opinion was decisively for the sequestrator, provided he had the approval of the bishop whose curate he is. 
at the same time an opinion was obtained which asserted the illegality of locking ordinary church pews. But I do not find that Simeon took the law against his opponents, though he had thus carefully ascertained it, a piece of practical wisdom fruitful for the future. All this while he was both diligently preaching to his aisle congregations and doing his utmost to organize his pastoral work. Among his manuscripts is a sermon dated April 1783, intended plainly to be a deliberate statement, it is a deeply heart-searching one, of his view of the calling and responsibilities of a clergyman. I find not the slightest allusion to parochial troubles. All is aimed at the minister himself. The people are desired, in a tone of manly freedom, to weigh his conduct and his words as those who are entitled to watch him, but also bound to pray for him. Thus he closes. It may be asked, perhaps, why do you speak to us about the duties of the ministry when we come to hear concerning our own duties? I have done it for your sakes as well as for my own, for your sakes because, by remembering the very nature of my office and the care incumbent on me for the welfare of your immortal souls, you will consider whatever may appear in my discourses harsh, earnest, or alarming, not as the effects of enthusiasm, but as the rational dictates of a heart impressed with a sense both of the value of the soul and the importance of eternity, and by recollecting the awful consequences of my neglect, you will be more inclined to receive favorably any well-meant admonitions. I have spoken also on this subject for my own sake, that I may be stirred up to reading, meditation, and prayer, and the performance of all my ministerial duties. But, as my most solemn engagements and actual purposes at present, like the zealous protestations of Peter, will soon be forgotten and falsified, if I am still left to my own deceitful and corrupt heart, let me beseech you, in St. Paul's words, to pray for me, and for all ministers, that we may be replenished with the truth of the gospel, and enabled to declare the whole counsel of God, so that the ignorant may be instructed, the wavering confirmed, the feeble comforted, and the strong established, and that both we who sow in preaching God's word, and you who reap in hearing it, may rejoice together for ever and ever. Such a style of address, grave and candid, and totally free from that easy but fatal mistake of troubled pastors, the scolding accent, gave a favourable omen for the future of this man, not yet twenty-three years old. And his labours in the pulpit were supported the while by more private efforts, General visitation from house to house was, as we have seen, impossible, but many of his flock began to show themselves moved by his message, and to seek more private intercourse with him, and he on his part saw their need of more methodical teaching, if they were not to drift. His own memoir shall take up the story. What was to be done? If those whose minds were impressed by my preaching had not some opportunity of further instruction, they would infallibly go to the dissenting meetings and thus be gradually drawn away from the church. The only alternative I had was to make them meet in a private room. I therefore hired a small room in my parish and met them there, and expounded to them the scripture, and prayed with them. In time the room was too small to hold us all, and I could not get one larger in my parish. I therefore got one in an adjoining parish, which had the advantage of being very spacious and very retired. Here I met my people for a considerable time. I was sensible that it would be regarded by many as irregular, but what was to be done? I could not instruct them in my church, and I must of necessity have them all drawn away by the dissenters, if I did not meet them myself." I therefore committed the matter to God in earnest prayer, and entreated him that, 
if it were his will that I should continue the room, he would graciously screen me from persecution on account of it, or that, if persecution should arise on account of it, he would not impute it to me as sin if I gave up the room. He knew the real desire of my heart, he knew that I only wished to fulfil his will. I told him a thousand times over that I did not deprecate persecution, for I considered that as the necessary lot of all who would live godly in Christ Jesus, and more especially of all who would preach Christ with fidelity, but I deprecated it as arising from that room. The room was certainly irregular, for the assembly was extra-parochial and might even have been regarded in law as a forbidden conventicle but its purpose was wholly in favour of order and cohesion, and as a matter of fact no mischief followed. During the space of many years no persecution whatever arose from that room, though confessedly it was the side on which my enemies might have attacked me with most effect. Allusions to the work done in this gathering occur often in Simeon's pastoral annals. It was the occasion of all others, when he could deal hand to hand with the spiritual needs of his people and keep watch over the religious state of individuals. As his acceptance in the parish grew, so did the society, and after a while it came to be so large that it was broken up into six. These sub-societies, classed with care according to sex, age, and other conditions, each met the minister once in a month. Arms for the poor were collected at each meeting, and the leaders, regularly designated, were the minister's stewards for the distribution. This parochial organization had its grave drawbacks at a time when ill health made it hard for Simeon to keep his hand as firmly as usual on the working. Some of the stewards betrayed a deplorable self-assertion and disloyalty, and were at last reluctantly shut out. But Simeon, after thirty years, was deliberately of opinion that some such methods were necessary if a pastor was to keep his flock together. After all this experience, what is my judgment in relation to private societies? My judgment, most decidedly, is that without them, where they can be had, a people will never be kept together, nor will they ever feel related to their minister as children to a parent, nor will the minister himself take that lively interest in their welfare which it is both his duty and his happiness to feel. A minister is to be instant, in season and out of season and if his public labours are comprehended under the former period, these private exercises seem especially intended by the latter, and one who would approve himself to God, as St. Paul did, should be able to say, I have taught you publicly and from house to house, and have warned you night and day with tears. But then great care should be taken about the manner of conducting them. The people should never, if it can be avoided, be left to themselves. The moment they are, there is danger of an unhallowed kind of emulation rising up among them, and those who by reason of their natural forwardness are most unfit to lead will always obtrude themselves as leaders amongst them, while the modest and timid will be discouraged because they cannot exercise those gifts which they behold in others. On such occasions, too, the vain and conceited will be peculiarly gratified, and mistaking the gratifications of vanity for spiritual emotions, they will attach a pre-eminent importance to those opportunities which tend to display their talents. This, therefore, a minister must guard against with all his might, and, if he make it a rule to conduct the service in the private societies himself, he will, for the most part, keep down these evils. 
It was not till I was laid aside by my long indisposition that these evils showed themselves in any considerable degree, and after all, if we will not establish such societies for fear of such consequences, we must remember that there is a cabodrus as well as a scylla, and that in all human institutions we have only, as it were, a choice of evils, there being nothing perfect under the sun. I quote this passage at length, partly as conveying some practical suggestions even for the present time, however much the details of parish plans must differ after a hundred years, but the words are important also as one evidence among many that Simeon was, from the first, as he remained to the last, a faithful pastor in parochia. He has been misrepresented not a little in this, as in other matters. The far-extended influence which came to him as his work went on, and the large element of publicity which inevitably marked his labours in the pulpit, and with the pen, and in the interests of religious societies, almost invite the opinion that his parish was neglected, was viewed by him as little better than an accident of his work. It was far otherwise. His pastoral life for many years was a life of difficulty and trial. False accusations were his frequent portion, but never do I find a suggestion that the grievance lay in any neglect on Simeon's part, or in any failure of his to identify himself with his parishioners' joys and sorrows. A small and diminishing section inherited the animosities of 1782, and traces of their opposition still appear thirty years later, but then they cease and even within that trying period there occur many incidents which show the growing warmth of his people's attachment. In 1807, when he was ill and absent from Cambridge, they proposed to him to remove the historic lecture from its immemorial hour in the afternoon to the evening service, thus lightening his labours, and the correspondence shows a loyal confidence on both sides. In 1808 he reluctantly consented thus to diminish by one the services of the Sunday, and the vestry resolved as follows, May 9. The health of our minister, the Reverend C. Simeon, no longer admitting of his continuing to us the third service on the Sunday, for which many years he has given us gratis, and it appearing from the experience of all those years that the attendance at church in the evening is much larger than in the afternoon, resolved that the lecture established and supported by the parish shall henceforth be at six o'clock in the evening, and that agreeably to the generous wish of the Reverend C. Simeon, the rent of the seats in the new galleries erected by the minister at his own cost be henceforth applied to augment the salary of the lecturer. A few years later, in 1813, I find an allusion to his work with young candidates for confirmation, at a time, we may remember, when confirmation was too commonly treated as the most perfunctory of church ceremonies, and the confirmation day was sometimes little better than a noisy holiday. Our confirmation was a profitable season to my young people. I instructed them twice a week in the chancel, and had a public catechizing and instruction on the Sunday afternoons. On the evening of the confirmation I preached to all who had been confirmed. Some view of his estimate of the true pastor's function and some details also of his own methods may be got from a letter written in his old age, 1829, to Bishop Sumner of Winchester. I have seen my lord, of very recent date, a little pamphlet, wherein a minister is set forth in Herbert's way as the father, the physician, etc., etc., of his parish, but my judgment did not go along with it. In a very small parish these duties may be combined, but it appears to me that, comparatively, this is serving tables. 
A pastor has other and higher duties to attend to. His wife, if he have one, should be the mother of the parish, but he must not, so to speak, be the father. He must be the pastor. The giving himself to the word of God and prayer seems to me to be his peculiar duty, and the paternal part, of administering relief, etc., should, I think, be delegated to others under his superintendence, as Moses delegated many of his duties to the seventy employed by him. This is what I have done myself for nearly fifty years. I have thirty, male and female, in their different districts, and I preach an annual sermon in aid of their efforts. By these I hope great good has been done, whilst by their supplying my lack of service I have been left at liberty to follow that line of duty which was more appropriate to my own powers, and which I could not have prosecuted if I had not thus contrived to save my time. The love and reverence of his parishioners were great indeed in his later years, and we shall see how they kept his ministerial jubilee. His own warm heart glowed towards them. In a letter written in middle life he expresses, feelingly enough, his sense of the monotony of our Cambridgeshire landscape as he saw it whenever he re-entered the county by the London road from green and smiling Hertfordshire. Yet the thought that here lies his allotted life work, here live his people, triumphs over the featureless horizon, and he would not dwell elsewhere for the world. The whole passage must be quoted. He is writing to a friend who laboured among the Jews in Holland. Your first sentence reminds me forcibly of what I have often felt and still feel. This situation I do not like. You refer evidently to the place and not either the church or people. Now I never come in sight of Cambridgeshire but feel, I will not say disgust, but a sensation which tells me what would arise in my mind if I did not check it after the beautiful country of Hearts, to come upon the dreary fields, field, I should rather say, of Royston, for miles, many miles, I shiver in the midst of July. The wilds of America are not more desolate in my idea than is the whole horizon to a vast extent. Yet, with all this, when I turned my back upon Cambridge twenty years ago for an excursion into the north, I looked at every house and tree, as long as anything of Cambridge was visible, with regret that I was to be so long absent from it, and with prayers to God for his blessing upon everybody in it, whether my people or strangers, whether friends or enemies. So I trust it will be with you in a little time, when God shall have poured out his blessing upon your own soul and upon your ministry, especially among the Jewish people." Your soul will be knit to the place, and you will bless your God that ever your lot was cast there. Amsterdam will still be Amsterdam, and Holland will still be Holland, to the natural eye, but to your inner man it will be an Elysium, the gate of heaven. Cambridgeshire has its scenes of true rural beauty, soon to be found, though needing to be sought. And there are times when the vast flat of the now-dry Finland has a grandeur and poetry of its own under a solemn or a brilliant sky, but the sense of such attractions is for most of us an acquired taste, and few visitors to our neighbourhood will fail to see something of the point of Simeon's remark. In any case, it is well to learn his prescription for finding exquisite charms in whatever landscape may surround us in the order of the will of God." Let me preserve here a reminiscence given me in 1884 by the late Venerable Master of Jesus College, Dr. Corrie, younger brother of Simeon's dear friend Bishop Corrie, mentioned below. He told it as I sat by him in his garden and heard some of his Cambridge memories of seventy years. 
Corrie entered the university in 1813 and brought with him an introduction to Simeon written by his uncle, Simeon's friend. You will take this letter to Mr. Simeon, said the writer, but you will not very easily find him. When you call, he will probably be either in the stable with the horses or by the sickbeds of his parishioners. I must not omit some notice of Simeon's labours in his earliest days outside his parish and outside Cambridge in the then woefully neglected countryside. Like John Berridge, but to a much smaller extent, Simeon acted for a time as an itinerant and preached in many an unlicensed place, sometimes in a barn to the farm servants. As late as 1809, when Bishop York was gone and the new diocesan, Dampier, a former fellow of King's, was known to be unfriendly to Simeon, these doings were brought up against him with other charges by a persevering opponent. The itinerations had then been discontinued a long while, and in his old age he used to meet any reference to them with something like regret as the mistakes of youth. Oh, spare me, spare me, I was a young man then. Yet his penitence was not unqualified. He used to say that there was a time when disorder was almost needful, while he rejoiced to know that in those later days there were so many means of hearing the gospel, and a much greater spread of it, a much greater call for order and much less need of disorder. The brief sketch given above of the state of the Cambridge neighbourhood will surely justify the statement that there is sometimes a need of disorder, and that the early days of Simeon's ministry looked very much like one of those. To return for a moment to the subject of his parochial diligence, he was not only a conscientious pastor himself, but a teacher of pastoral industry all round his circle of influence. It is supposed by some that the early evangelicals were pious men who knew their Bibles but did not do much work. The fact was very different. Among Simeon's typical predecessors, there were many men who not only searched the scriptures and not only toiled as evangelists, but were also the most patient and watchful of pastors. Let me name Grimshaw of Haworth, Conyers of Helmsley, Walker of Truro, Robinson of Leicester, and a little later Scott of Aston Sanford. And among Simeon's younger friends and followers it was the same. My dear father, an attendant at Trinity Church about the year 1820, in his early manhood was put in charge of the large country parish of Gillingham in Dorset, and there had a visit from that good man, Bishop Burgess of Salisbury, on occasion of the first confirmation held in the church within living memory. The kindly bishop spoke with warmth to his young host, not only of his own efforts, but of the work of other men of the same opinions. I must tell you, he said, that wherever I go in my diocese, it is generally those who think with you who are the active men in their parishes. It is they who get schools built and diligently teach the young, and bring them well prepared for confirmation. This chapter shall close with one extract more from Henry Venn, writing to his son-in-law, Charles Eliot, of Brighton. January 8, 1790. On Monday, my affectionate friend Simeon walked over and slept here. Oh, how refreshing were his prayers, how profitable his conversation. We were all revived, he left a blessing behind him. He preaches twice a week in a large room. My daughter attended there when I preached, and his people are indeed of an excellent spirit, merciful, loving, and righteous. End of chapter 4